God, we are secured in your love. Father, we thank you that in your plan of redemption that you brought us to yourself, that you have given us your spirit that is conforming us to the image of your Son, that you are convicting us and progressing us to be more Christ-like. Father, we thank you that you have brought us right into your family. We are not only slaves of yours and your servants, but we have been made your children, sons of God, that we can even call you Abba, the most tender word for Father, that we can cry out to you in a moment's notice and you hear us. We can cast our burdens and our cares upon you and you answer. Father, again, we thank you that you have made us your heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Even giving us the privilege, though we don't always understand this, to suffer with you as Christ suffered on this earth. That even in our sufferings and hard times and difficult times and trials and temptations, you're using these to conform us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That really all things do work together for good to those who love you, who are called. And Father, I ask that you would cement in our hearts these truths, that you have everything planned out, that we can be confident that what you have begun in our lives will be finished. Yet, Lord, help us now to be about your business of making disciples, of telling others of the good news, that the Lord Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. It's not by our own efforts, but it's because of your mercy that we are saved. And as we stand in your righteousness, it's not something we're doing, but we stand being declared justified, being declared righteous. And Father, help us just to remember these great truths that our appreciation and our gratitude and our thankfulness to you would be shown not only in our praise to you and our worship from a pure heart, but also our actions and what we say and how we go about telling others about you. Help that just to be the forefront. Give us wisdom now as we study. This is a very hard passage, a a difficult passage. It's um, just a hard passage to see how there will be people, many, most, that will end up for eternity in damnation. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that has never received you, that this might be their day of salvation. They would recognize the fact that through the Lord Jesus Christ's death, they can be forgiven and brought into the family. So we ask for your wisdom, your conviction, your understanding in this passage, that you would have your way and will done in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Revelation 20, I can see by the time, I guess a bunch of the message won't be preached today. Next week, is next week's Thanksgiving week? Yeah, I'm not going to speak on hell on Thanksgiving week. We are going to speak about heaven. Well, I always consider the week before Thanksgiving. Next week is that, right? I don't have my calendar. Next week, right? Please help me, yes? Okay. Next week is heaven. 
Today we're going to be looking at everlasting punishment. Remember, last week we talked about Hades. Hades being kind of like, if you want to think of it, county jail. But tonight we're going to be talking about the state penitentiary, the final place of the damned. Okay? The story comes out of uh, Greek history. Archimedes, many of you probably know who Archimedes was. He was one of the greatest of ancient Greek mathematicians and scientists. But this was the story told about him. He was working on a math problem when his native city of Syracuse was conquered by the Roman general, General Marcellus in 212 B.C. So again, a couple hundred years before the time of Christ. The scientist, Archimedes, ignored the final assault and continued working on his math while the enemy entered the gates of the city. Now think about this. He's working on a math problem. And the enemy is destroying the city. As the Roman soldiers came down the street where Archimedes was, he continued to work the problem in the sand and offered no resistance, even as one of them ran him through with a sword, and he dropped dead right there. I tell you that story because I think sometimes believer, or unbeliever, excuse me, unbelievers are like that. They keep working on something temporal, and yet eternal punishment, eternal damnation is right around the corner. It's only literally a breath away. And yet we stay, they stay focused on something so temporal so, something so insignificant, and they just keep working feverishly. I, I was watching this last week, um, a show I had never seen before, but it's called uh, Doomsday, let's see here, Doomsday Bunkers. <laughs> you know, these guys with guns, a lot of guns, you know, and they build these bunkers that are steel underground, and if the world goes under, they're going to survive with their family at least for the first six months, because after that they run out of food, but the point is, is that they are preparing. By the way, you should be prepared on, you know, on some things, but I, I just found it interesting about that. They're preparing, they're preparing, they're preparing, but have they prepared for eternity? They say that when the Titanic went down, they were still placing uh, place settings at the dining room table as the boat was taking in water. See, there's a lot of different illustrations of, of people making decisions about things that are temporal and yet not dealing with the eternal. J.C. Ryle, the, the bishop in England, said this, Quote, the watchman who keeps silent when he sees a fire is guilty of gross neglect. Would you agree with that? The watchman that sees a fire and doesn't do anything about it, gross, gross neglect. The doctor who tells us we are getting well when we are dying is a false friend. I would say that's true. And then he goes on, he says, And the minister who keeps back hell from his people in his sermons is neither a faithful nor a charitable man. End quote. If we never speak of hell, if we never speak of the reality of hell, then I'm not a faithful or charitable man. But let's say it this way. Let's just not say the minister, the pastor. How about the, how about the, the father? Or the husband that keeps back hell from his wife or children, who doesn't ever talk about hell. Or the friend or the family member who never speaks of hell to their father and to their mother and to their sisters and brothers. Are we considered faithful and charitable if we never tell them about final punishment? 
Again, I think we need to get real serious about why we're on this earth. Because by the way, we can do everything else better in heaven. We're going to be perfect when it comes to bodies. We're going to be perfect when it comes to worship. Why did he leave us here? Because Jesus told his disciples, which he also told us, make disciples, right? Go therefore and make disciples. We, we need to be about the Father's business of seeing people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Because again, there is an everlasting punishment. There is actually a hell. And people will be sentenced there forever and ever and ever. And we're going to see that. If you're in Revelation chapter 20, we, we kind of see the beginning part. Now again, we're not going to go through this um, as far as expositionally because it, one, for, because of time. And, and someday if the Lord uh, uh, does not come back and if I'm still here as pastor, I'd like to cover the whole book of Revelation. <laughs> But that will be a long study. But uh, someday we might look at Revelation 20 in detail. This is the reign of Christ. By the way, Revelation 20, uh, verse 11, is after Revelation 20, verses 1 to 4, or 4 to, actually 4 to 6, which is the reign of Christ. The thousand-year reign, and at the end of the thousand-year reign, the great white throne happens. In the great white throne, it says in verse 11, I saw a great white throne throne. This is the scene. By the way, this is a terrifying reality. This is, this is one of the hardest passages. Maybe you could say this, the most sobering and most tragic of all passages of Scripture. Right here. These four or five verses are the most sobering, the most tragic, the most terrifying of any passage in Scripture. Because it is the final judgment of the unsaved. And it is final. Because there is no such thing as purgatory. Or um, as one man called purgatory, a refining school. Have you ever heard that? No. This is final damnation. Therefore, it's terrifying. It's real. And it's called the great white throne. Think of a courtroom. And it's great because of its significance, because of its majesty, because of its authority. Whatever comes out of this courtroom is final. So it's called great. It's white because of its purity and holiness of who's sitting on the throne. And we're going to see that in a moment. But it's a throne. It's absolute righteousness. Here at this throne, justice is done. See, what we find in, uh, in American system is so much, so often the, at the, in, in court today in America, justice is not done. But here, justice is done. Justice will be meted out. So we have the great white throne. And him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Well, first of all, let's answer the him. Who's the him? What's well, God? But what person of the Godhead? Well, we find it is Jesus Christ. Because in John 5.22, it says this, The Father judges no one, but is committed all judgment to the Son. So this is Jesus Christ sitting at the great white throne. By the way, the Father is also sitting at a throne, we find in other passages. But as far as who's judging the people and who's judging the earth, it's Jesus Christ. Think about that every time you hear his name being defamed. J.C. G.D. Do you understand that the person who finally judges you will be Jesus Christ himself. I'm not saying to you, I'm saying to that person that just said it. 
It's a very sobering fact that in the end, it is him, Jesus Christ, who is going to be the judge. If you go to Daniel, keep your hand there, Daniel chapter 7. When we went through Daniel, we read this, we studied it out briefly. We see uh, Jesus Christ again, Daniel, Old Testament. He's presented, verse 9, I watched till thrones were put up. Excuse me, let me get you there. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. That would be Jesus. His garment was white as snow. His hair was, of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. So again, this is Christ. And, you know, fiery eyes in the sense of there's purity represented. There's wisdom the Ancient of Days from, you know, the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Creator, the Sustainer, the Judge. Perfect judgment. But notice what else? Second part of verse 10. A thousand thousands ministered to Him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. And the court was seated. And the books were opened. Boy, isn't that... Whew. By the way, he's seated. It doesn't say that the, the condemned are seated. It says the condemned stand. But all these witnesses, all these witnesses, and final judgment, the final meeting out of... By the way, this happens at the end of the age because the works of a person that is unsaved does not end until the end of the age because Hitler is continuing to receive condemnation for the, what he did even to this point because your works uh, go after your death. I was reading about Mao Zedong yesterday. You know, you always hear about Hitler and, and Stalin. Mao Zedong, they say, he killed between 40 and 70 million Chinese. Whew. He, was, he was the number one killer of all. You don't hear much of him. His works are continuing even to this day. So it's not to the end of the age that these that the condemned will have their final sentence. It's not till the after the thousand years. So the great white throne. By the way, this if you go back to Revelation twenty, second part says, From whose face the earth and the he- the earth and the heavens fled away. That, that's referring to them being destroyed. As one said, whereas Jesus Christ created the earth, in the beginning was God, John one created all that was Colossians says he sustains it here he uncreates it <laughs> the heaven and the earth they fly they, they flee away as it were sucked into nothing by the word of God by the way which means this that the throne is not in heaven or on earth they've been destroyed it's in space by the way we're entering the point here very close where there will be no more time like we think of time and everything is going to be recreated. In fact, in Second Peter chapter 3, it says this. Second Peter 3.10 The day of the Lord, referring to the day of the Lord, this time frame, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with a fervent heat. He repeats the same thoughts in verse 12. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The earth and all its works. Now think about that. That's a great leveler. <laughs> That's a great... Yeah, yeah, everything that we see will be burned up. Lord, help me to not work 
for my own petty projects and my own little kingdom. Because it's all going to burn. There will be no Alfred Almond Bible Church. There will be no new edition. By the way, it's pretty much done. I say pretty much because you always have that last piece of molding somewhere. <laughs> if you're ever interested in helping out, there's still a little bit more just putter work. Some of you have really, really stepped up and helped. And I so appreciate it. I won't try to name all of you because then I'll forget someone. But, but you know what? When it's all said and done, it burns. Be careful. Let's not, make, let's not put so much energy here thinking somehow this is the eternal. It's not. In fact, one of the things the Lord has been really reminding me of, and it's been growing in my heart, John, love me and love the people that I've assigned you to. Don't spend too much work, you know, on this other. I've even tried to make this. Yeah, I get a little stressed out at points, but try to make this of maybe just connecting with some of the men that, you know, and the women that show up at the men. Just love me. Love the people. It's about people. People's souls. They're, they're eternal. They're, they're going to last forever. By the way, Peter says this, because it's going to melt, because it's going to be destroyed and burned up, verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, quote, what manner of persons ought you to be? Isn't that a great question? Since this is true, by the way, we do believe it's true, right? What type of person should you be in holiness and conduct? What type of person? Well, we should be the type of person that says, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, you still, yeah, you still have to mow your lawn. <laughs> you know, I'm not telling you, you know, let's forget about mowing because the Lord's coming back and it's all going to be burnt. No, no, you got to still mow your lawn. But let's make sure that the priorities of our lives are such that they line up with what the end times is going to be. Holy conduct and godliness. That's what we need to be working to. Verse 13, we look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's going to be great. I like what John Wolverd said. He said, the whole structure of the universe, not just the earth, but the universe is operating on the principle of a clock that is running down. Tick, tick. And it's just running down. And there comes a time when it will be no more. Not because that lost energy, that could go on for thousands of years more. But there's going to be one, Jesus Christ, who then puts an end to it, right? At the great white throne, first thing that's judged, heaven and earth. Now what remains are the people. Verse 12, and I saw the dead. That's all, I can just tell you, that's all the unsaved who ever lived will be, as, he, as Paul said in Acts 24, I think it was Paul, the resurrected of the wicked. So the resurrected of the wicked, that's who are the dead. By the way, not believers. We're not here at the great white throne. Um, Corinthians tells us about the Bema seat, the reward seat of Jesus Christ. But this is of the unsaved. I know that because what does it say in uh, Romans chapter 8? There is therefore what? Now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So we're not here. By the way, we are those that Daniel talked about that are watching. I believe we are there at, in that sense. We're watching this courtroom take place. But notice who are the great. And I saw the great, small and great, excuse me, and I saw the dead, small and greater. New American, I think, says great and small. The idea is this. All people from all walks of life, all people from all degrees of greatness while they're on this earth, the small and the great, everyone's going to be summoned that have never received Christ, standing, important, 
Because a prisoner, the convicted, are standing before Jesus Christ. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. The book of life would be all those who ever received Christ, those who were called, those who were elected, if you will. And the dead were judged according to their works by which... By, by the things which were written in the books. By the way, I think the book of life is only open to show, yep, you're not, you're not covered under the blood. I, I love that one part of the song. Um, uh, saved by the blood, secure in his love. Yep, these are not saved by the blood, secured in his love. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. I think the sea being uh, the fact of the physical bodies, you know, you're cast in the sea. Have you ever seen what happens when you're cast in the sea as a dead person? You know, like uh, we used to, when we go to New Jersey once in a while, we go fishing for crabs. I mean, like you put a piece of meat in there and like, like, where is it? You know, those crabs just eat it all up and all the, everything that's in the ocean. I think he adds this by saying this. If there was ever a place where you would think that you couldn't get a body to come back together it would be the sea. I mean, if you bury the person in a casket, if you bury them in a tomb, yeah, maybe you could say, yeah, you could resurrect. But here he's referring to the, the body. See, see, what's happening in this picture is this. The body of the person is, get, I mean, the person is both spirit and body, and the body has to come back in a resurrected form to, with the spirit. And that's what he's talking about right here. So again, the sea gave up the dead. He's talking about the body who were in it, and death, the... That's probably referring to the resurrected body. The Hades there is talking about the spirit. So the spirit comes in back in unity with the, the body because at this point, uh, uh, they don't have that, the resurrected body. You might say, resurrected? I thought only uh, saved per- people had resurrected. No, every person will receive a body, the damned and the uncondemned, I mean, the, the believers. So the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Lake of fire is another word for hell, another uh, uh, phrase. This is the second death, that's hell. And anyone not found written in the book of life, which actually I believe were all that were standing there, was cast into the lake of fire. So again, their spirits were united with their resurrected bodies and in such cast into the lake of fire, the second death. By the way, we're going to be now looking at just some very some characteristics of hell. I think Jonathan Edward had a very profound point when he said this. Quote, The reason we find hell so offensive is because of our insensitivity to sin. See, we don't think our sin is as bad as it really is. And yet now that we, we will see the severity of hell, I want you to just keep thinking. That's because our sin is so great. By the way, as soon as a believer sees that, he should immediately run to the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the mercy and the grace and the love you had for me to go to the cross and pay for my sin. You took my hell, as one man said, so that we might enjoy your heaven. See, hell should not ultimately be the most depressive, the most paralyzing thought, though it could be for some. 
It should immediately, as a believer, drive us to the cross with praise and singing and gratefulness for all that He has done in our life. Because we, we become less insensitive to sin. By the way, this should also create holiness in our life. Lord, You have called us for purity. Let me live that life because of all the suffering You had to endure on the cross for me. So let's look at hell for a moment. Again, hell may be denied, and it is denied, by the way, by most, but it will not disappear. This truth is truth, whether someone believes it or not. You take a poll in America, they're not going to say, well, we believe in hell. Nah, it's just some figment of some theologian, some radical religious guy. No, this is real. First of all, the reality of hell the reality, when I say hell, the lake of fire, the second death, is factual. Is factual. Fire is used more than 20 times in the New Testament to depict the torments of hell. Fire. By the way, hell, uh, just the word hell, when Jesus said, and you'll be liable for hell, like in Matthew 5, uh, 22, I think 29, he, he, he mentions hell. Many times that word hell is, there's a number of words for it, but the primary one is Gehenna. Gehenna. That's the New Testament word. It's actually referring to the valley of Ben-Hinnon, which was south of Jerusalem. Like if you look at Jerusalem, right down here there was Ben-Hinnon, Gehenna. And you say, well, what was it? MacArthur says this, quote, In Jesus' day, this Gehenna, that Jesus is referring to, like when he said in Matthew 5.22, in danger of hellfire, Gehenna fire, uh, you'll be cast into hell, verse 29, verse 30. Then the whole body be cast into hell. Chapter 10, verse 28. Dest- fear him who destroys both soul and body in hell. And it goes on and on. In fact, he uses this word Gehenna, just that word, 11 times. I mean, he refers to hell in other passages, other different words, but just the word Gehenna, 11 times. In Jesus' day, quote, It was the site of Jerusalem's public uh, garbage dump. The fires kept constantly burning there that gave off a foul-smelling smoke, and the dump was infested with maggots. Sometimes the carcasses of animals and the bodies of criminals were dumped there to rot and burn. So what was Gehenna? What was the Ben-Hinnon that he's referring to? It was just south of Jerusalem. It was a big garbage dump and everything was there and fires were started and they would just keep burning continually. There was always a fire burning at Ben-Hinnon. He goes on and says this, The valley of Ben-Hinnon was thus an apt picture of eternal hell, one used repeatedly by the Lord. Again, I said 11 times. Hell will be, quote, God's eternal cosmic dump. Its inmates will be burning as garbage forever. That is such a horrendous thought, isn't it? I think of a relative never knew the truth. And I know that at, at the end, he will be there. But I also know of people right now that are in my mind that are still breathing that need to be told. Oh, but you don't understand. He might, be, he might get frustrated and offended. Is this offensive? C.S. Lewis talked about hell and said this, to enter hell is to be banished from humanity. 
not only like a rubbish dump, but it's like a prison. Peter talks about the chains of darkness being chained, never to be released. Let's look at another aspect. It's not only like a rubbish dump, the reality. That's the reality of hell. But the second is the justice of being condemned. If you're in chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 13, and they were judged, each one according to his works. By the way, what do you mean everyone according to his works? Well, those who have not been placed or saved through the blood of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, the works there would be every thought, every word, every deed is going to be judged. Remember, Jesus says, uh, every thought will be taken care of at the end. Every thought, every word, every deed, every motivation. By the way, Satan, the father of lies, seeks to deceive about this coming judgment. He wants to forget about it. By the way, that's why in our world, you know, we use hell so flippantly. Boy, that was a hell of a good meal. That was a hell of a good dinner. That was a hell of a good game. You understand what you're saying there? Not you, but you know. See, we just try to minimize it. Use it enough and it just becomes familiar, it becomes trite. That plays right into what Satan wants. By the way, what did he tell Eve? You will surely not die. Just the lie. He's the father of lies. He denies final judgment. There's false religions that he's created. There's atheism that's out there, all denying final judgment. But let's look at this. They were judged. They were judged. By the way, they are judged by Him who is the all-perfect one, the all-knowing one. Revelation says He's the Almighty one. He's the judge that's sitting here. He's sitting, they're standing. And there's no defense. There's no defense for the accused. There's no rebuttal. There's no cross-examination. By the way, at the great white throne, there will be no mercy. Mercy is on this side of death. There is no mercy at that point because the books are opened and each sin will be judged and a proper punishment for each. See, he only is sitting there as the just judge. Aren't you glad as believers, not by righteousness what we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us? We don't stand there. That's why we're not there. See, they didn't receive mercy because they didn't receive Christ. Therefore, they're standing on the only thing left, and that's their works. See, Jesus told his disciples, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How many of you are perfect? So I stand condemned because I do not fulfill Matthew 5.48. I'm not perfect. And yet Galatians says this, that the payment has been given. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse, what? For us. He went to the cross. for He became our curse. The curse that we had on us went on him as a believer. And imputation was transacted. Imputation being uh, uh, what I have charged to another. Um, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. My sin was placed on Christ. He died as the sinless Lamb of God. But then, because I am forgiven, his righteousness is imputed, is charged to my account. And though I have not yet been made righteous, because that comes at glorification, I have been declared righteous. That's an important. I've been declared righteous. 
But see, these have never been declared righteous. They stand only in their works. By the way, do you stand declared righteous because you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted Him to be your only Savior because you recognize your sin, that it condemns you before the Holy God, and you have put your faith in Him and repented of your sins? Again, that doesn't mean that you're perfect. None of us are perfect. But our hope is in Christ and nothing more. So that's the justice of being condemned. And then we see the torment of hell. The torment. Verse 14, And death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire in the second death. And any, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And you say, what are the torments? By the way, I want you to understand this, that the unforgiven, those who are cast alive into the lake of fire with a resurrected body. By the way, the resurrected body is resurrected, but it's a... It's a body that has all the, all the impurities and imperfections of a body on this life. See, the glorified person has a perfected body. The person that's an unbeliever gets a body, but it's a, a body of corruption. Think about, think of, I mean, I was looking on the internet yesterday just to, just like type in the word diseased. And it comes up with all these pictures of people are diseased by cancer and you know, brokenness and all the diseases of this world. The unsaved get a body, but it's a disease, corrupted body. Spurgeon wrote this, There is a real fire in hell, as truly as you have a real body, a fire exactly like that which we have on this earth, except it will not consume you, though it will torture you. You've seen asbestos lying amid red hot coals, but not consumed. So this person's body will be prepared by God in such a way that it will burn forever without being consumed. With your nerves laid raw by a searing flame, yet never desensitized for all its raging fury. And the harsh, pungent acid smoke of the sulfurous flame searing your lungs and choking your breath, you will cry out for the mercy of death but it shall never, never, no, never come. That's hell. Fire. It's contemptible. It says where the worm does not die. Probably that's the accusing conscience. It's, the idea is this. Forever you will have the memory. Remember we saw it with the rich man. He remembered Lazarus. It's the memory of knowing that you had the opportunity, if you had and yet never receiving Christ and having that memory that it's all because of you not doing the right thing. It's a place of total darkness. It says that we will, or they will be cast into outer darkness, outer being darker than anything on this earth. I mean, some of these terms, by the way, are very hard. He's, he's using terminology to try to get the unfathomable understandable to us. And each one of these can be, you know, built on, but we don't have time. It's therefore banishment, cast out into outer darkness. Cast being in the passive, you, something is being acted upon the person. It's isolation, whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I, I read Char, uh, Francis Chan, and he said, well, we know 
that when, when a fire, you can't have darkness and fire at the same place. I don't think that's true. I, I remember talking to my brother-in-law, Oren. He said, when you get in the midst of a fire, if you're a fireman, you can correct me if I'm wrong later, not now. Um, but he said, when you get into a fire, because he's a fireman down in Georgia, there's a point where the fire, you don't see it anymore. It is just so black, you can't even see in front of you. And I think of hell, and you say, no, there can be fire and darkness in the same place. Therefore, these, these people who say, oh, I can't wait to get to hell to see all my friends. Mm-mm, there's isolation. There's banishment. There's unending anguish. Matthew 8. There will be weeping, what? And gnashing of teeth. That's just suffering and anguish, intense pain. By the way, the uh, gnashing of teeth, it says that when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. This is Stephen and how the religious leaders responded to Stephen and in Acts 7. And it says, they gnashed at him with their teeth. The idea being anger. In hell there's not only anguish, but there's anger. There's abandonment. Remember what Jesus said? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Dante in his inferno, in the, in the inferno, the, uh, his... Uh, a script, I believe it came from Dante, said this, quote, it was above, I think, a door. Abandon every hope, you who enter here, a place that has no hope. Absolute hopelessness. So hell then is the raw soul joined to an indestructible body exposed to its own sin for eternity. Of unquenchable pain, raging guilt, Without painkillers or sedation. <laughs> or sedation. <laughs> what could have been? Final two. Everlasting. Is it everlasting? Isn't there annihilation? Isn't there some hope? Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 41 said, Then he, oh, he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire. Verse 46 says, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. That's a very important verse because he uses the same exact word, everlasting punishment, everlasting life. So if our life is everlasting as believers, then their damnation is everlasting as the tormented. Or to say it this way, this was a Puritan that wrote this illustration, but I think it's, I mean, how everlasting is everlasting? And he said it this way. If all the earth and the sea were sand, think of everything on this earth was sand. And every thousand years, a bird would come and take away one grain of sand. Every thousand years, one grain of sand. It would be a long time, but that vast heap of sand would be emptied at some point. Yet, if after all that time, the damned may come out of hell, there would be some hope. There would be some hope if we knew at the end that all that sand would be... But this word ever breaks the heart. See, no, no, that's not how it plays. By the way, if you think about it, if every thousand years, one grain of sand... I believe this earth is less than 7,000 years old. We're only on the seventh grain. That's how he describes eternity. Every piece of sand taken every thousand years on the entire earth... But even after every piece of sand is taken, millions and billions of years later, they're still forever. 
This is very sobering stuff, right? In fact, I was reading the same Thomas Watson, Puritan, and he, he used that same terminology a second time. This word ever breaks the heart forever. Everlasting. Let's close with one final thought. The ease of accessing hell. The ease. It's easy to get to hell. It really is. Like Randy Elkhorn said, hell, not heaven, is a, hell, not heaven is a personal default destination. Hell, not heaven, is a person's default definition, or destination, destination. It's easy. I mean, if you don't do anything, you're going to end up in hell. Because what do you have to do to stay out of hell? You have to find someone to pay for your sin. By the way, the person in hell is being punished for their sin. They're not paying for their sin. There's a difference. Because if you're paying for your sin, you'd be there for a certain amount of time, pay for your sin, you know, and then go on to heaven. But you're not paying for your sin. They're not paying for their sin. They are being punished for their sin. See, that's why Paul said, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourself. And the first thing of these two things, I would say this of you. Are you truly a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you come to a point in your life where you recognized your sin, you recognized the realities of judgment, you recognized Jesus Christ as the only Savior, you confessed your sins, you asked God to forgive you on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. In other words, you recognize that he was your substitute, your substitutionary, he paid a substitutionary death on your behalf. And you received him. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. You believed in him. Why? Because it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You repented of your sins and you received Christ as the only Savior. See, again, he paid the penalty for mine, your sin. Because he's eternal God, he could do it in one death, at one moment of time. It was sufficient because it had infinite value. Romans says this, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. He who believes in the Son shall have eternal life. But he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Have you ever received Christ as your Lord and Savior? I trust that you are a believer. Because again, that transaction is made. I just love 2 Corinthians 5. But he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He became my substitute that we might become the, uh, become the righteousness of God in him. Now, have you ever been saved? And if you haven't, call out to the Lord. (laughs) Right? Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve damnation. I deserve hell. I deserve hell forever because I see the severity of my sin. But I recognize that you died for me and I'm I'm placing my hope in you, not in myself because it's not by works of righteousness that I've done. It's according to your mercy. The second thing is this. If If you say, no, I definitely know I'm saved. By the way, my life even matches it. When I even walk away from God for a moment, the conviction just hits my heart. I need to come back. I mean, it's not the perfection, it's the direction of your life. 
But to you who are saved, uh, I like what Francis Chan said. He's, he wrote a chapter that said this, don't be overwhelmed. <laughs> and the, and the, uh, the book was on hell, erase in hell. Don't be overwhelmed by hell. Quote, while hell can be a paralyzing doctrine, it can also be an energizing one. It should be an energy. You shouldn't be paralyzed at this point. If you know you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it should energize you. Maybe even a little, maybe some repentance of saying, you know what? I'm living for myself. I'm living for stuff that doesn't even matter. It's going to burn in a few years. It should be an energizing one. For it magnifies the beauty of the cross. Hell in its judgment magnifies the beauty of the cross. End quote. See, hell is the uh, backdrop that reveals the profound and unbelievable enormity of my sin, of your sin. That's what, that's what hell does. It shows how, how unbelievable, how, how horrendous my sin really is. Even the sins that I commit now. But it also then moves me and says, but look at the cross, the beauty of the cross, the glory of the cross, the glory of the Savior. See, Christ, Jesus Christ freely chose to bear the wrath that I and you deserve to pay forever as punishment in hell. He paid it. Complete. It is finished. Man. Why? So that I can experience life in this presence with God. I mean, I can have fellowship with Him. I can be His child. Or say it this way. How can I keep back from singing and crying and proclaiming His glories? And then it also should drive not only to praise God and to praise Jesus Christ for all He's done in the Spirit, but then it should, like I said, energize. By the way, here are some more books if you want them. By the way, I only sell them for a buck. That's still more, uh, less than what we buy them for. Excellent. In fact, I would encourage you, take one. If you can't pay for it, just take it anyway. But use it as a devotional for a week. Read it through. Let, let, because these are gospel. And let it hit your heart. You know what? There is a hell. You know what? I need to be about the Father's business here. Lord, help me not to be selfish. Help me not to be fearful of what people think. I'm about your business. There should be, there should be uh, worship in my heart and care in my soul for others. That's what it should do. See, I didn't, I didn't preach this message to you, well, you know, because I want to depress you or paralyze you. I would hope, no, wait, make sure that, uh, test it yourself, see if you're in the faith, okay. Yeah, I've received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, but you know what? But boy, this has really put reality in. Everything's going to be burned. Judgment is coming on people I know. Oh Lord, thank you so much that you died for me. Thank you so much that I will never have to endure the outer darkness. Thank you that I won't have to endure the pain and, and isolation. And ban- Thank you, Lord, that I will live forever with you and not live forever in hell. But Lord, I need to get out. Help me. Open the door. I will speak. Open the door. I will speak. Oh, but I don't know what to say. Well, I will. Yeah, I, I'm going to prepare myself because I'm expecting you to use me. Let's stand as we worship him.